Today I will be reading from 1 John 3, 1 to 3. You can follow along in your Bibles or on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is God's word. So um, Halloween is a special sort of time of year. I think it's my favorite holiday. That's a tangent, side note. Um, but I love being in San Francisco during Halloween because there's just a million things going on. People, San Francisco loves Halloween, I feel like. And uh, this Halloween was our year uh, anniversary of living in San Francisco and being a reality and sort of being a part of what God's doing here. It's been so great. And it was just kind of cool to have that be the marker of like every Halloween will just be our anniversary, which is neat. Um, and also, it's it stood as sort of a reminder for me that um, I have had First John 3, 1 through 3 on my mind for like a year, which is weird for me. It doesn't happen often. And it's been a, a source of encouragement for me. It's been um, something that's just been, yeah, just on my heart, providing some sort of existential something in a, in a new year in a new city, raising kids in San Francisco and uh, taking on new ministry stuff and um, all that it's been great. Um, and recently, you know, towards the second part of the service, I'll put a prayer team volunteer tag on. I'm not a real member of the prayer team, but I just do it. And I'll stand to the side of the sort of the second half of the services and we'll just pray for people if there's extra people who need prayer. And in the last three or four weeks, I have uh, had just a consistent theme of, of people needing encouragement. And um, needing courage, like the word encourage from the French is to literally put in courage. And that is my hope for this morning. And I've, I've been praying for people, you know, three weeks in a row of people saying, I need bravery to handle a tragedy, trauma, life issue that I want to avoid, but I need like the resources to dig into it and really deal with it. Or um, other people, probably, you know, young tech types that are uh, praying for courage to deal with the layoff thing, like I just got laid off, or I fear I'm on the bubble, or I'm now navigating relationships in a way just trying to hold on to my livelihood and the anxiety that's produced with that. And so it's been people praying for courage to face that and to not let it take over every part of their life, the fear of loss. And other people asking for bravery and courage to um, take a step of faith to trust the Lord in an area of costly obedience. Like, I know God wants me to do this thing or to stop doing this thing or to think this different way. And I fear the loss of what I have for fear that God's going to take me somewhere I don't want to be. All those things take courage. It's my hope this morning to just give you some courage from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I'm not giving you the courage. God's giving you the courage through chapter 3, 1 through 3, of course. And, uh, and that's my hope. 
The other function of this sermon today, my hope is, is that you'll have three different resources to encourage you. And there's like three very practical ways to hold on to the Christian life. And I've sort of been fascinated with different passages of Scripture that sum up what it looks like to be a Christian and um, allow you to really like dig in in detail about how the Christian life works. Like how does it actually function? Believing in Jesus, following Jesus, how does it actually function in my daily life with my personal set of hang-ups and hopes? So I hope we did that as well. Actually, the function is like stepping in close and looking at some details about 1 John 3, 1 through 3 and what it looks like to be a Christian. And then actually my hope is to end with just with what John is telling us to do, to behold, to see something beautiful. Now, I'm no art expert, but I have been to the Louvre once, which is the art museum in Paris, on a layover from some other trip my wife and I were taking. And I was told when we went to the Louvre that you can't see every painting, every sculpture in the Louvre because there's just so much of it. You can't see it all in one day. And... Um, of course, when I went there, I understood why. It's because if you really want to appreciate good art, you have to take it in. And if you have like the little headphones that they give you, uh, you'll hear some history about it. And then you need to step close. You need to get in close and see like the technique of a painting, for instance, or the technique of a sculpture. And to see like the skill and the artistry and the expertise that goes into it. But you can't really fully experience a painting from here. You have to back up and just behold the whole thing and just take it all in and let it wash over you. And I think John is doing something about that in the gospel. He wants you to see it in two different ways, up close, in detail, almost see the argument build, and then back up and behold uh, Christ, see him as he is, to use John's language. Um, if you look in John chapter 1, Richard Bauckham, scholar Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, talks about how John starts First John, the letter, by making a legal argument, he's using all this jurisprudence, legal language, like you would use in a court of law if you were giving a testimony about what you saw. And he's accessing, John is accessing all this legal language to clearly make an, a legal case. We saw Jesus, the real deal. Eyewitnesses. Okay. But then the tone shifts to beholding. John's saying, see this, and then behold it. And the tone shifts in chapter 3. Um, to something that's much more worshipful, and the language completely shifts to something that's just broad, beautiful, and hopeful. If you look in John 1, you'll see the, you'll see the argumentative form of the, uh, of the testimony. John writes, That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We, have, we write this to make our joy complete. See it? Let's tear through it. Three resources that can be encouraging to your life, and let's finish and just behold how beautiful God is in these three resources. The first resource we have as a Christian in 1 John 3 is an acceptance that doesn't exclude. The second resource is an identity without uniformity. And the third resource is a hope that can face anything. Let's jump in. Acceptance that doesn't exclude. If you look in verse 1, 
It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We, as Christians, are called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So the context of these early Christians that John is writing to is that they live in the world. The world in the New Testament is sort of a technical term for the fact that Christians were a peacemaking religious subculture, and in many ways a counterculture, um, that lived with other people who claimed to be the sons of God and have a connection with God themselves. The Greco-Roman world, you know, that Caesar was the, um, the son of God Savior. Caesar had his own gospel that was sent out to the Roman world. And so these lang- this language is sort of like heard in a context that you would understand if you lived in the first century. There are also the, the Jewish world that many of the earliest Christian converts were directly from that Jewish world who saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all Old Testament scriptures and every story is speaking to him as Savior. And so these early converts were these, the most unlikely people to ever convert to worshiping Jesus, which would be um, Jews, but they were the first converts. So other people groups in the time claim to also be children of God. And, you know, today there are geopolitical I don't want to understate it. There's geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East today from two different groups that also have the same claim to be the children of God and then have an ownership over God. I think, at least in the Western world, we hear that and we, there might be in the room some, a question like this. If you claim to know God and you claim to say, God knows me and I'm a child of God, and not everyone's a child of God, but I'm a child of God, wouldn't that be a source of self-righteousness? Wouldn't that be fuel to oppress, mistreat, and see yourselves as better than and superior to other people? The argument would say, we know God, and by implication, you do not. God knows us and values us, and by implication, you do not. Now, that's not the only... I told you it was going to be an encouraging sermon. I, I promise that will be. Uh, uh, but with the geopolitical turmoil, um, the extent to which I am qualified to even speak on it, I think it's worth asking the question, if you claim to be a child of God, on what grounds are you made a child of God? I think this is the distinct power of Christianity that is peacemaking. On what grounds are we claiming to be made a child of God? And how is that love given to us in Jesus? That's unique. How does that cause us to not exclude others? Okay, let's put a pin in that. Let's talk about the text for a minute. We'll come back to it in about two or three minutes. Okay, we are children of God. The literal translation of verse 1 would say, Behold how miraculous, what, what kind of love, what is the nature of love, this lofty, what kind of love, the extent of language to describe, the la- that's lavished on us from the Father, which is bestowed upon us, calling us children of God. What does that say about our relationship with God? First, it says that when you put your faith in Jesus and you are a Christian, you follow him, you trust him as Lord and Savior, whatever the words that we use from Scripture to describe this. Um, it's not a transfer. It's, it's not a, a conversion of degree. It's a, a change of nature. Being called the child of God is a statement of position and standing, not of degree. I think if you ask the average person who's just religious and you said, are you fill in the blank of religion? Sometimes people would say, I'm trying. Or even with Christianity, you, you might say, well, I'm trying to, to be a Christian. But that is not the conception of knowing Jesus being accepted and being brought near to God in Christianity. Because we're adopted as sons and daughters. That's the imagery. We're adopted into sonship and daughtership. And so um, 
It's not like your acceptance is to the degree that you've performed with uh, recent weeks or months. It's a change of status that is declared over us. Verse 1 is saying that love has been lavished on us that we are called children of God, labeled. That is our new identity. Some of this might be helpful if you understand that most adoption in the first century was not done from little kids, but adults. If you were a landowner, if you were a business owner, but you didn't have an heir to give your, your business or your wealth to, you would find somebody who you wanted to bring into the family, someone that you wanted to bring near and bestow all of the resources from your business, from your family, your identity, your local uh, reputation. You would put all of those things on an adult who you wanted to bring into the family to own and now run the business. Most adoption was done amongst adults. And imagine if you're a person who gets adopted at 40, that you, all your debts, like all your student loan debt, I'm looking at some of you, all your student loan debt would just get absorbed into the massive wealth of the family that you would get adopted by. And that's a new future. I don't know about you, but like that is a new kind of like future. Um, all of you renters to have a home, all of, all of us who go, um, I don't feel like much, but then you get adopted into like a family with a name. Or for those of us who worry about um, security and comfort and sort of long-term like sustainability with our life in San Francisco, nobody ever worries about long-term sustainability in San Francisco. Like you're going like, how am I ever gonna sustain this? That being brought into that family would give you a, a, a breath of calm to say, we're gonna be okay. But it all happens because on one day you were not a son. On one day you were not a daughter. On, on one day you were just in debt. And then you're brought into the family and all of it's absorbed and then just like lavished on you. That would change identity. It would change security. It would change the emotional freedom with which you can sort of say, I don't need to worry about these things now. Now I have resources to live my life with more joy. That's, that's a change of position, not of degree. If I earn it, if I perform religiously, if I feel a certain level of spirituality, then I've made it. That's adoption. The second implication about being children of God is that we are passive recipients of it. The love has been lavished on us that we should be called, in the Greek, that's two passive words there, children of God. And some of this might fall flat on you if, you if you think that the Bible is saying that everyone is a child of God. If you sort of go, Isn't, didn't I hear in some sort of kumbaya Christian song uh, about everyone's like a child of God and God's got the whole world in his hands or something like that. Like, isn't, the, or isn't everyone just sort of the same? And while there is in scripture this like common grace for all humanity, regardless of whether you like God, want God, hate God, whatever, there is a common grace that falls on all humanity in the same way that rain falls on everything. But uh, that's not what John is talking about here. And if you universalize the children of God, it will it fall flat. Because, and specifically, you won't think about the costliness of what it took for you to be brought near. And I think it doesn't emphasize how special it is that, you, that when you read the scriptures, you're saying, like, that I should be called a child of God. Why me? And you might, for, it might, not, be, you might not remember the costliness of it, meaning what, what it took, what, what, it lo- what God had to lose to have you. And you might not understand like the longitudinal time, over time context of your salvation, that God from eternity past planned a world in which his son would die and that God would lose the greatest thing that ever came to earth. 
so that you could be accepted in? Like some of those things, they, they do fall flat if you universalize them, but um, same thing in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That gift is there, and then there's a reception of it. You have to receive it. You have to take it on yourself. You have to behold it. You have to let it wash over you. You have to come to a place of trust that of all the things that could be your savior in the world, that you say, I'm going to make Jesus my savior in faith. That of all the things that you submit submit yourself to that are your functional Lord, that we say, Jesus, I trust you. That's the sonship and daughtership. So what does it mean to be adopted? It means that God loves you in Christ, because on, on, the, on the cross, he takes on our sin. He gives us the relationship with God that only he deserved. And what does it mean to be adopted? It means that God loves you every bit as much as he loves Jesus. Like That's what it means to be adopted. You're brought in the family. You are officially family. There's permanence to that kind of love. Even if you um, act up, even if you don't perform as a son or a daughter, does that mean suddenly you're not a son or a daughter? No. There's a permanence. There's a healthy attachment to that kind of love. That's the metaphor from Scripture. You are transferred from not not being a child to being a child with all of the rights and privileges as passive recipients of God's grace. And God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. I'll keep going. Galatians 3 says that God, we are God's loved children. Zephaniah 3 says that God sings over us with joy. Hebrews 13 says that he will never leave us, even in the midst of our sin. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus, prophecy of Jesus, absorbing the penalty of our sin. Romans 8 says, the Father will never condemn us. And Isaiah 41 uses the image of a mother. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Neither will I forget you. You're not alone, condemned, or given up on when you are adopted and called a child of God. John emphasizes the statement by having the, this little tag at the end of the sentence. It says, we, Behold, what great love that's been lavished on us that we could, should be called children of God. And then it says, And that is what we are. And the emphasis of, and that is what we are, and literally in the Greek it just says, and we are, it's so clearly just a part of this overall tone of chapter 3 that is so much more excited and worshipful and and elated compared to the argument that's being made in chapter 1 that it's meant to carry like the height of any all that language can kind of communicate to say don't you see the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love for you his children through Christ and that is what we are how do you even communicate that like how do you even encapsulate that kind of excitement uh, what, come, what came to mind for me randomly was um, the Howard Dean scream that would like sum up that kind of excitement. So it, Howard Dean is a, a d- Democrat, a pr- presidential primary candidate in 2004. You guys know. And so 2004, this like lesser known presidential primary candidate was sort of like going from nothing, the unknown, to like a, a rising star. And he, he might have been somebody. And the people that went to his rallies were stoked to be there. Like, he just had a following from some people. And Howard Dean, I liked Howard Dean. Uh, I liked his energy. I think as the rallies got bigger, he got more intense. 
And uh, at one particular rally, he was like, given the speech, he probably gave a million times, but people were just stoked. And he starts grabbing the mic and doing this. And he goes, you know what? People didn't think we were going to be here, but we went to Iowa. People were like, yeah. And he's like, we're going to South Carolina. And the people were like, yeah. And he goes, and we're going to New Hampshire. And people, yeah. And he goes, and we're going to the White House. And this is where things went bad for Howard Dean because the next thing that he did was just the most insane scream that it lost his presidential hopes for the rest of his life. Because he goes, we're going to the White House. <laughs> and people were like, do not give that guy the nukes. You know, that is not a trustworthy, balanced individual. And it just ended. But I liked Howard Dean. I liked his energy. I validated. Do you guys want to watch a video of Howard Dean screaming? Okay, let's watch a video. You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and go. Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. There we go. That's what I'm saying. I like this guy's energy. This is First John 3. John is trying to use the height of language to be like, behold what love the Father has lavished on you and what it costs him that you of all people should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Ah, that's, yeah, that's what John's saying. We have to behold it to the extent that you take it in yourself. Here's the point I'm trying to make. That how would that, how would that love cause self-righteousness? When you're passive recipients and one day you were not adopted and then the debt was paid, the riches were given, the new identity is there, it's secure because of the wealth of the father that adopted you. How as passive recipients completely absent of our moral performance, but sheerly because of his grace, how would that cause us to exclude and oppress others? Or to put it this way, if in the past and present, Christians utilize the name of Jesus to mistreat and oppress and exclude other people, is it because they're believing in this gospel more or is it because they're believing in this gospel less? And I'd argue that it's the absent of gospel, absence of gospel belief that would cause us, it's the moments when we're not believing in this Jesus that would cause us to say, you know, people need to be a little bit more like me. Well, we don't say that, but we think that. Or that you would look at other people and exclude them from the community of, of, um, of humans. Or that you would say, all those people, they're just like this. This kind of grace creates in us a radical kind of generosity because of the love that's been lavished on us. That's the first resource, that we have acceptance that doesn't exclude. The second resource is an identity without uniformity. There, um, and really what I mean by identity is a source of change, like a power for change and a vision for your life, who you are and where you're going. There are historically, sociologically, sort of two dominant trends that, by which people form their identity and a vision for their lives. We can quickly label these the traditional approach, historically and even in other cultures today, and then the modern Western approach. A traditional approach, Charles Taylor calls the porous self. And here we look to, in a more traditional way, we look to other people, our community, and outside of ourself 
for people to tell us who we are, tell us what we should do with our life, and what we ought to be doing and how we should identify ourselves. This is the poorest self. We've got little holes. The community around us says, this is who you are. This is who we say that you should be. And there's strengths to that because there's like a community that's around you in it. There's clearly weaknesses historically to that as well, right? This has been the source of a lot of classism and a a lot of, um, you know, just the, the, the implication that because you're a child to a certain kind of person, therefore you can't rise up any better. There's not a lot of individual rights behind those kinds of ideas. So there's, there's the weaknesses. Then there's the modern self. This is the one that most people have adopted. This is the culture that we swim in. And the modern self says, don't look outside of yourself for your identity or for a vision for your life, but look inside yourself. That in fact, the, the narrative is you need to leave your community. You need to create a hero's journey of disassociating and buffering yourself between a community and anyone else's expectations on your life and then only look inside yourself for an identity and for a vision for how you ought to live. The strength of this, of course, is that it's the source of a lot of our individual rights in, and it's even the product of, um, of Christianity since the 1500s that we have an individual view of rights. But it, this way of identity formation has its weaknesses as well. It's incredibly isolating. It's incredibly fragile. There's not a community around you to affirm the things that are beautiful and good about you. And so if inside yourself you see a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-hatred, there's not not necessarily a thing to disrupt that if the authoritative thing that defines who you are is just what you decide about yourself, your own personal experience or lived experience or truth. So while it has some strengths, it has some glaring weaknesses. It's very fragile. You might find something about your identity and then lose it six months later because you feel different. You see something different inside of you. And there's other, other issues uh, around them, strengths and weaknesses. So one says look around you. The other one says look inside of you. I think there is a third way that's available to Christians for change, a power for change, and a source of really like sticky, resilient, I'm lovable, no matter what kind of identity. Um, the reason I bring this up, though, and the reason the point title is Identity Without Uniformity is because I think mostly in our cultural moment in San Francisco, when Christians talk about what people ought to do with their life, most people hear a traditional identity formation, the porous self. Most people hear sermons, and the framework that they hear them in is, oh, you're trying to get me to be traditional and religious. But I think um, Christianity is something different than both of these. Look in verse 2. Dear friends, now that we are children of God, now that we're children, What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, what fundamental, strict, religious community has ever said, verse 2, hey, become a Christian, and who knows what you could turn into? They don't say that. They say, we know what you're going to turn into, you need to start shopping at Banana Republic. I'm trying to think. Like, what would it be? Like, you need, to, you need to talk this way. This haircut, this type of clothes, this type of culture becomes the culture above the culture that you actually came from. But there's, there's these things that get lumped in in a particular kind of um, Christianity as traditional identity formation. But here in verse 2, John is saying, trust Jesus with your life, and it's incredibly adventurous and creative. 
as the Spirit works inside your heart, empowering you to believe in Jesus, and as the gospel motivates the actions and the emotions and the um, trajectory of your life, and then and you have an end trajectory where the Spirit of God works in you such that there is a promise that there is like a gradual sanctifying growth that happens because of God until the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So there's a trajectory for your life. Now, you go back to John, 1 John 3, that when we see him face to face, we will be like him. So whatever hangups you have, whatever insecurities you have, there will be a time where there, that is not the case, where that is not the truest thing about you. To quote Dave Lomas' book title, sorry. That was, there's, that's not the truest thing about you. If you look over time long enough, you have a trajectory for your life that will be perfected when we see him face to face. And by seeing him face to face, you'll know yourself more and you'll know him fully. And so you'll be changed because you will be like him, 1 John 3 says. So there's a destination for your growth that's graced to you because of God. And there's a process that's the promise of the process through the work of the Spirit. And we live in the midst of hustle culture that says if you just grind and by implication find your identity in the success that will come at the end of it, you'll get there. But it's exhausting. Like if you look at Amazon and you type in um, uh, no excuses book, you will find that there are a thousand books with the main title no excuses and the byline's just a little bit different by a thousand different authors because that hustle culture has just pumped out books with the exact same title that says if you just keep telling yourself no excuses, you'll get there. Well, that might be a way to do it. It might be actually a kind of stoic, modern source of identity that says look inside yourself, don't make any excuses and just live it out. But that, there, there are weaknesses to that. And there's an anxiety around, will I get there? Like the author got there, but will I get there? So we have a different kind of change, a different kind of identity. What you will be, imagine. Imagine who you could be. Chances are that even our present sin hides God's vision for your life from you right now. Like we don't have categories. We don't have a plug for the kind of person that you could be. And there's fear in that. There's fear that you'll have to trust God the whole way. And you'll have to sort of say, God, I, I, maybe I'm not trustworthy to handle every part of my life and I need to let go of control, even around my most core identity and say, hey, Jesus, will you, will you identify me? Like, will you tell me who I am? And then help me live that out in community? What we will be is not yet been made known. It's not just one hero's journey where you're a lone ship. What we will be, who knows what God's gonna make out of us as a community in San Francisco in this particular time and what God will do with you. But there's a promise there and there's a destination that will be like him. And along the way, there's not an anxiety of your own personal insufficiency because the growth is not the product of your hustle or your religious strength in the first place. It was grace to you. Okay, that's the second resource. Identity without uniformity. And now resource three, a hope that can face anything. Uh, since 2016, there... Uh, the, the statistics on suicide rates have jumped. And it's been a few years now, so we can like look at the data and see that the populations where the suicide rate jumped the most were amongst the most educated and privileged in our society. Like the people who have historically been marginalized, who have like systemically been kept down by our Western, just American 
sociopolitical, whatever, the suicide rates haven't increased at all, but have tripled amongst other populations who objectively like, have a lot of other things in life going for them. What does that mean? You add that with the fact that if you watch TV, streaming stuff, you start to see that um, the anti-hero, sort of like most heroes are just are anti-heroes. They're like bad, Breaking Bad and all that. Like it's, it's not heroes, it's just kind of heroes that also make a lot of really destructive choices. And there is this end of days malaise that is the subject of every multiverse and time travel movie, book, TV show where everything just blows up in the end, roll credits. It's the end of days malaise. My son's favorite movie, my son's a part of this now too, I guess. My son's four years old. His favorite movie is Wally. You ever watched Wally? Yeah, it was a good movie. And I was like, let's watch Wally. And he, every 10 minutes of the movie, he was like, are they going to be okay? <laughs> because the story is that we polluted the world so much through like corporatism and, and all that stuff that we just literally, the whole world is just trash. And then we all just flew out on spaceships and got blubbery because none of us needed to walk anymore because we lived in space. You can go watch it. Okay. So end of days, even my son, four years old, he's part of the end of days malaise. This is the world we live in. Andrew Del Banco is a cultural commentator. He wrote a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And in that book, secular author as far as I can tell, he says, we are future-oriented creatures. We will put our hope in anything because we need hope to live today. We need something to deal with malaise and loss. We're all searching for a power. There are some cultures that turn their nationalism into their hope. They'll make a god out of nation. Some people will make God their hope. Some people will make a general concept of progress their hope, which if I remember correctly, he sort of deconstructs by saying, whatever you label as progress is just sort of a value judgment in itself. Like whenever you say this is the right side of history, really what you're saying is I think this is right. So you can deconstruct even the love of progress as to like what I currently think is progress. But it becomes a hope, a general sense of like the new ideas are going to take us to the place that we need to go. And the reason I sort of speak about it with that tone is because we are now rounding the curve on that and there's starting to be a decline of people saying this is taking us, just generally speaking, into a hopeful place. And so, we need hope. We are future-oriented creatures. What do we do? Verse 3 says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. In the word pure, read sort of like tangible, godly, just, loving obedience to God. Pure. Like pure in God's sense in terms of our lifestyles. And I think it's funny that there's a relationship in this verse between hope and purity. Clearly, right? If you have this hope in him, it purifies you just as he is pure. And I think part of it, if you look in verse, uh, 1 Peter 1, it's a treatment of hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Peter says, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead that can't perish, spoil, or fade. Of all the things you put in your hope in, it won't go away. And it's kept in heaven for you. And through faith, that truth shields you from the losses of today. First Peter 1's written to persecuted Christians who are dying every day because of their relationship with the Roman government. And he's saying there's an inheritance, there's a life to come that is being protected. And just by the sheer belief in the return of Jesus, this hope 
where we see Jesus face to face and he returns. This hope is so powerful that just the belief in it gives you radical life change and resiliency today. All who have this hope in him will purify themselves just as he is pure. So we have temptations to disobey God with money, power, sexuality, any and everything. But our future hope is tangibly a help to us. Us looking ahead to the return of Jesus helps us today because let's talk about money. When it's our tendency to hoard money and our our tendency to say, I just need more security or comfort or status or whatever that money gives us, then uh, we will be generous and loving and open-handed about our money to the extent that we say, this money is not the only money I'll ever have because I have an inheritance that, the inheritance that cannot perish, it's not the only riches I'll ever have. Um, uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, from which chapters six, seven, and eight of that book are sort of like on these topics. You should go read it. It's very philosophical, but it's a great book. Um, he uses this illustration in his chapter about hope. He says, if you take two employees and uh, they live in, they work in one of those sterile corporate work environments, flickering fluorescent lights, cubicle, just the boring corporate life. Some of you live that life. Um, and so if, you, if their job is to just like log widgets on spreadsheets all day, it would be like a pretty dull job. But if at the beginning of a 10-year contract where you say, you're going to do this job, you're going to log widgets for 10 years, if at the beginning of that contract, you, you take one employee and you say, we're going to pay you $18.07, which is the minimum wage in San Francisco. Uh, we're going to pay you $18.07 an hour for 10 years. And the person is so desperate, they sign the contract. Um, you send them off to count the widgets. Then you take a different employee and you say, at the end of this contract, we're going to give you $30 million. Imagine the difference in the job experience between these two people. One person immediately is gonna say, I already hate this job. I can't believe what it takes to make a living in San Francisco. And they're, and they're gonna say, uh, I, I don't like the work environment. The light over there is flickering. The lunch room is not, you know, I don't get long enough breaks. They're gonna have a general malaise because there's nothing waiting for them but the results of a minimum wage job. But the person who's gonna, at the end of this contract, get cut a check for $30 million, Imagine what your mind would do for those 10 years. Like if you knew it was a sure thing, you would say, what am I going to do with my life? I'll have a new lease on life, a new kind of status. What, how, I'm going I'm to get fit. I could afford a gym membership. I, uh, I could buy a house. I could have neighbors. I could carve pumpkins and put the pumpkins on the front of them. Like I could, I could be the house on the street that decorates a lot. I, uh, I could go on vacations to the Louvre. I could do all kinds of stuff. You'll be filled with imagination as you take the widget, as you check the box, and as you type it into the spreadsheet. You'll be filled with wonder the whole time. And this is the difference between having hope and not having hope. Because uh, in, in our passage when it says, we know with confidence, as sure as Jesus rose from the dead and we saw him, we testified to him, we, saw, we touched him, that he will, as sure as we saw that, he will come back and reconcile all things to himself and he lo- the, the cross shows us that he loves us. And he's a sacrificial God and he wants us. And the resurrection shows us that he's powerful over the circumstances of the world and that it is his world and he is waiting to redeem it and have all things being right. And Revelation 21 says that he will himself wipe away the tears from our eyes. When that's the future, 
then you can look at your money and you can say, this isn't the only thing of value I'll ever have. Now, having great riches in heaven is not a motivation to know Jesus, but there's something even greater. The illustration is to say, there's something greater in Jesus that we will have than that. Uh, sex, you know, sex stuff. Like when we're tempted towards a, a kind of sexuality that is ungodly, that doesn't involve the intimacy and commitment that is God's vision for marriage and sexuality, when, when we're tempted towards any other destructive sexual habits, there is an apocalyptic existential nature to that sexuality. Like the reason why sex stuff is tempting is not just hormonal. It's because you, you're sitting there going, I feel like I'm not loved. And I, I want someone to look me in the eyes and go, you're glorious. And the curves, you know, like you're just thinking about it and you're going like, look at, look at the body parts. You know, it's not just that they're beautiful. You're going, there's something apocalyptic where you're going, I want to take all of that meaning and I want to just, I just want to like make it a part of me as much as I can. I, as, as much as I can take that person's beauty into myself and I want to feel accepted and loved and warm and all of those things. And some of our sexual sin is like apocalyptic in nature. It's existential. It's, it's like us going, I don't know if I'll ever be loved again. And I just want to be loved now. Or I'm not getting any cuter and I'm lonely. You know, like I need to strike while the iron's hot. And so what our hope fuels in us is a tangible self-worth and resiliency today to say, the acceptance I have in God, the intimacy I have with God is not the only intimacy I'll ever have. And I trust that, that if I want to feel glorious because I feel small and ugly today, that there is a trajectory of me knowing God's love for me more, and there will be a day when I see him face to face, and I feel glorious. Close. Let me close with this. This is not just a general hope. If you look in verse 3, John says, all who have this hope. It's not just a sense of hope. It's not just optimism as we've sort of redefined the word hope in our time. It's a tangible trust that changes us today. And I want to read a quote from you from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, about our passions and all the things that we long for when we think about hope. He says, We want something else in all of our passions which can hardly be put into words to be, be united with the beauty we see to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. That is why the poets, that is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that the beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but do not make us fresh and pure, but doesn't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the rumor that it will always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall, we shall get in. Apparently, then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. All the longings of things that we want to grab and 
be made full and behold that are beautiful in the world, they could be lies or they could be prophecies of your future in Jesus. And what I've described to you today is sort of a threefold description of what it's like to become a Christian, like life in Jesus. Gracious acceptance through Christ's death on the cross, a changed life through God's grace working in your life and through your life every day, and a renewed creation, a hope that can face anything. I hope that we, now that we've torn through all these like parts of it, to just stand back and go, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we, of all people, should be called children of God, and we are. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Let's pray.